If you would, let's turn in our Bibles together to Acts chapter 1. Uh, we'll be in verses 12 through 26 this morning as we continue looking at this kind of initial uh, preparatory phase of the life of the early church. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read this portion of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word, faithful and true. Beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he, that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated, and then let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we believe that your word is truth. We ask, Lord, that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to record these events would now illumine our hearts and minds, that we would understand these things that have been written for our edification. Pray that we would receive them with faith and love, that we might lay them up in our hearts, that we might practice them in our lives. Father, help us to see Jesus in all of it, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that some of you young ones and maybe some of the young boys especially maybe were taken with the part of Judas's death. That's a graphic part of this uh, passage. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that uh, in just a little bit. It's kind of a shocking thing to read. Uh, this passage is um, full of God's sovereignty. It is full of God's sovereignty. 
And that should be an encouragement to us to trust in God's sovereignty as we live our lives for Jesus and as we carry out the mission that he has entrusted to the church. In a recent article in World Magazine, uh, there's a story told of three sisters who, along with their mother and an older brother, grew up in a cult in Mississippi. Uh, The story is, at the same time, heartbreaking and hopeful. These three sisters who grew up with their mother and their brother in this cult eventually escaped. They made it out of the compound where the cult had uh, kind of made its self-sustaining home. Uh, And they escaped, but not without scars from the situation that they lived in, which involved uh, abuse and neglect and all kinds of things that none of us want to happen to children or anyone else for that matter. Yet in their telling of the story, they each reckon how they saw God's hand at work in their lives, even through evil, the evil actions of others, even through their own suffering at the hands of others, they saw God's hand at work in all of it. As one example, the older sister tells about how in, in, in the cult, as part of their schooling, they were required to read the Bible. Uh, it was kind of a heretical Christian cult, if you will. And as part of their education, they were required to read the Bible two times before they graduated high school. Not much, but it was enough that as these sisters read the Word of God, even though they were hearing false things about the Bible, even though they were hearing twisted distortions of what the Bible says, the Word of God did its work. They were able to read the Word, understand what it said by the power of the Holy Spirit, and tell the difference between what was written in the Bible and what they were hearing in this cult in which they were involved. And God used that to give them faith and to sustain them through this great affliction that they faced. Even though they were suffering, God's word prevailed, and God was at work in their lives. Their story, I believe, is a wonderful reminder to us the same truth that we see in this section of the book of Acts. God is sovereign. Uh, He rules. He reigns as king over all. There is nothing in, in this world, in this life, that lies outside of God's sovereign plan. It may be and very often is mysterious. We don't often understand everything that we experience or see. We cannot fathom all of God's ways. But we can know that he is in control, and that he is good. And this passage in Acts points us to that wonderful truth, that God rules and reigns over all his creatures and all their actions, that his purposes and plans cannot, will not fail. Even in the face of human failure and evil, Jesus is accomplishing his plans in and through his people, the church. And so we can have confidence in his promises and live for his purposes. And we see this wonderful truth in this kind of preparatory phase of the early church in uh, three different ways. First, we see the disciples as they move from fear to faith and prayerfully wait upon the Lord as they move from fear to faith. 
We also see this in the way the church is revealed, warts and all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and how God sovereignly works even through human evil, particularly highlighted in Judas's betrayal and death. And then finally, we see Jesus as he reconstitutes the 12 apostles as kind of the core group of the new Israel going out to bear witness to the light of the gospel, the light of God's truth. Let's look first at this movement from fear to faith, this movement from fear to faith. What did the disciples do after Jesus met with them, confirmed his resurrection to them, and then went back up into heaven? What did they do after that? Verses 12 through 14 tell us exactly what they did. They did what Jesus told them to do. He he said, don't go anywhere. Go wait in Jerusalem because from there I will pour out that which the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth, which is kind of the outline of the book of Acts. That's how it unfolds geographically. He says, go and wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. So they do. They go back to Jerusalem. Uh, They were with Jesus at the Mount of Olives near the village of Bethany. Uh, And they leave from there about a Sabbath day's journey and go back to an upper room. Probably not the same place where they uh, celebrated the Passover with Jesus. But we don't really know. Just some upper room where they gather as they wait. And notice two things about this scene where they are waiting. Uh, Number one, there's a change in their overall demeanor, in, in their attitude, their outlook on things. Particularly, there's a change from the way the disciples Uh, from their experience at the end of the Gospels into now the beginning of the book of Acts. Think about how the disciples are often described after the crucifixion, even just after the resurrection of Jesus. They're, They're fearful. In John chapter 20, John tells us that the disciples gathered in a room together and they locked the doors for fear of the Jews. We get the impression that they are confused, they're scared, they're anxious, they're uncertain about what's coming. They are certainly afraid of those who had arrested Jesus, handed him over to the Roman authorities who eventually had put Jesus to death on a cross. The women who are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, when they show up to the empty tomb and the angels appear there, uh, Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that the women were terrified. They're, they're shocked, they're scared, they're fearful. Jesus appears in a room with other disciples at the end of Luke's gospel, and it says that the disciples are startled. They're frightened, even at the appearance of Jesus. And if we take the ending of Mark's gospel to end in verse 8, which is probably right, the last word of the gospel of Mark indicates that they are afraid. They come to the tomb, the tomb is empty, And they're scared. They're fearful. Not to mention Peter's fear resulting in his denial three times of Jesus when confronted whether he knew Jesus or not. There's this movement here, though, from fear to faith. They gather together. There's no indication that they are worried about the Jews busting into this uh, this upper room, rather, and arresting them, 
carting them off because they're followers of Jesus, because they were seen with him. There is rather a demonstration of faith. They've seen Jesus. They've, they've spent 40 days with the risen Jesus as he taught them about the kingdom of God, as he confirmed to them that he really was alive from the dead. And as they witnessed him ascend back up into heaven as the exalted and sovereign Lord. They now are full of confidence, not because of anything that they have done, but because they have met with Jesus, the risen and now ascended Lord. So now we see no longer fear, but instead faith, and particularly faith demonstrated in prayer. Faith demonstrated in prayer. That's the second thing to note here. Notice how Luke describes what this gathering is doing. They are continually devoting themselves with one mind in Christian unity to prayer. You have the disciples there, minus Judas Iscariot, which we hear about what happens to him later. Uh, You have the women who attended Jesus all throughout his ministry. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you have Jesus's brothers, who, by the way, didn't believe who Jesus was during his life, but now, now do. You have all of them gathered. We're told later that about 120 of these disciples eventually gather in this upper room together. And as they wait, what are they doing? They're praying. They are devoting themselves earnestly to prayer together. The early church in its ministry, uh, all of their ministry flowed out of prayer, of a commitment to depending upon the Lord, to seeking his will, to seeking his power, uh, to submitting themselves to his plan. The early church's ministry flows out of prayer, even as Jesus' own ministry flowed out of prayer. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is going away from his disciples, going to pray, to uh, lean upon his Father, and to lean upon the promises given to him as the Messiah. Jesus is constantly praying throughout his ministry. And now the early church, under the rule and reign of Jesus, the ascended Lord, is doing the same, praying as they carry out the mission entrusted to them. One writer says that prayer is the only proper human attitude towards God's sovereignty and his gift of the Holy Spirit. Another writes that at every significant turning point in the narrative of the book of Acts, we find the disciples praying. It's it's all over the place. It's inescapable that the early church and their ministry is fueled by prayer. Prayer and God's sovereignty go hand in hand in the mission of the church. Think about how busy we can be. All of you are busy. The month of May is extremely busy. And then we enter into the summer and it gets maybe a little bit busier, but it's a different kind of busy because school is out. But we're all busy. And and sometimes we feel like busyness is success. I've got my calendar filled. I've got every hour accounted for. I'm doing things uh, constantly. I've got activity ongoing, programs, whatever it may be. We can sometimes feel like the church's job is to be busy, that Jesus has given us work to do, and we've got to be busy about it, and so we've got to be active all the time. And yet it's easy to be busy and to neglect the deep need of prayer. 
to depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ in carrying out the mission that he has entrusted to his church. We can be busy with 100 activities, 100 ministries, but it will all fall flat if we're depending on ourselves and not the Lord. Uh, Our family, or at least Carly and I, have begun watching a show recently called Maine Cabin Masters. I don't know if anybody has uh, found this show. I love these shows. That They're just guys who have skills working on houses. I don't have those skills. I enjoy watching guys who do. And this is a team of of, uh, five or six folks in Maine. And what they do is they go around around all these cabins uh, on, on these different lakes in Maine. They call them camps, but they're really just cabins. And, and they fix them up, you know, standard kind of home improvement type show. And in almost every episode, the first thing that they do when they begin working on these cabins is they fix the foundation. Most of these cabins were kind of hand-built back in the 30s or 40s just with whatever was around. And so you got all these uh, rotten pieces of wood holding up these cabins And that's the first thing that they do. They don't start cleaning up the outside. They don't replace the siding. They don't decorate the inside first. They get underneath. They remove the rotten structure. They they level it out. They straighten it up. And they give it a strong foundation. Because they know uh, that if they don't do that number one important thing, then you could have a beautiful cabin and it'll fall down. And it won't be safe. And you won't be able to enjoy it. You don't often see that part of the cabin. It's not something you spend your time looking at and admiring. If you you think about this with your own home, you don't spend time underneath the house every day checking things out. You simply trust and hope that you have a reliable foundation undergirding the structure of the house. So it is with prayer. It's not always up front. It's not always visible. It doesn't always seem uh, like we're doing much because we're stopping and bowing our heads, perhaps praying with our eyes open, however you do it, doesn't look like much. And yet without it, we stand upon a faulty foundation. The early church was driven by and fueled by prayer. And the same is meant for us today, to be committed to faith expressed in prayer, seeking the Lord's power and wisdom for the church and for our lives. The disciples moved from fear to faith. We see that in their prayerfully waiting. We also see God's sovereignty on display in the warts and all description of the early church, in particular how the Lord fulfilled his plan even in the face of human evil, specifically in Judas. Probably you know the story of Oliver Cromwell, the um, uh, leader in England during the English Civil War. Somebody was coming to paint his portrait, and the trend at the time was to kind of, you know, beautify the portrait. It was like uh, 17th century Instagram filters or something. And so the portrait, uh, the the painter shows up to paint Oliver Cromwell's portrait, and, and as they're talking about it, Cromwell says, I want you to paint me warts and all. And you can go see this painting. He's got a lot of warts, apparently. But his point was, don't clean it up. Don't make it look prettier than it is. Just depict the reality of it. And and Scripture does that all over the place. It's one of the reasons why we should be convinced that the Bible is God's Word. It never shies away from the failure, sin, and shame of God's people. 
There are no heroes in the Bible except the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All other characters are feeble and frail, just like we are. And Scripture doesn't cover those things up, and it doesn't cover up or gloss over, if you will, even the story of Judas. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly of the early church here in Scripture. It's not made over. It's not curated for appearance. The reason, I think, behind this is because God is at work. God is sovereign, and he's not limited, he's not thwarted by human failure, evil, or our limitations. He works in, through, and even sometimes against our purposes and our plans. And here we see that in the particular event of Judas's betrayal and his eventual replacement by another among the 12 apostles. Notice the way Peter describes this. Peter stands up in the midst of the, the brethren, and brethren here is inclusive of men and women. It's just the way Scripture talks about the whole group. And he begins to preach to them, saying that the Scripture had to be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit foretold through the mouth of David about Judas. Notice the assumption there behind what Peter is saying. He's saying David, who lived at this point when Peter is talking about a thousand years before Peter and and the rest of the disciples, David said things in the Psalms that came from the Holy Spirit and were about Judas. You see God's sovereignty in that. God God had a, a plan. And that plan involved one who shared bread with Jesus, raising up his hand against the Savior, betraying him, handing him over to the Roman authorities, selling him out, stabbing him in the back. And and they might have been tempted to look at that and say, it's all lost. If if one of Jesus' close companions. He was part of the 12. He had his own share, his own portion in the ministry that Jesus had. If one of those can prove to be a betrayer of Jesus, then what hope do we have for the rest of us? What hope do we have that any of this will succeed? And Peter stands up and and confirms things that Jesus said earlier, namely, this was part of God's plan. Judas's Wickedness, betrayal of Jesus were part of God's plan. God is sovereign even through human evil. And human evil cannot stop God's plan from unfolding. Judas's betrayal was the fulfillment of Scripture, but it's also his responsibility. See, God's sovereignty doesn't remove our accountability. It establishes it, perhaps in ways that we don't understand. But notice Judas was responsible. Verse 18, it was his wickedness. Verse 16, he was the one who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 20 indicates that there was judgment meted out to Judas by the living God because of his wickedness. God's sovereignty rules over all things, including even the worst of human sin, like Judas. Of course, there's an even worse sin that took place that we read about in Scripture that was also part of God's sovereign plan and demonstrates to us the fullness 
and the extent of God's sovereign rule over all things, namely the cross of Jesus. There is no worse sin recorded in the Bible or in human history than the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, the Son of God who became man, who entered into our frailty, who took our flesh upon himself, bore our sin in our place, was put to death on a cross by the hands of wicked men. And yet it was the predetermined plan of God. God is sovereign even over the worst of human sin and accomplishes his purposes in spite of them. Judas's betrayal was no surprise, and it did not for one second cause any delay in the plan of God to redeem a people for himself. And if that's true, in these big picture items, then it's absolutely true in our own lives as well. We, we live in a way where we, we cannot see all things clearly. Uh, we, we look through a glass dimly, as the Apostle Paul says. We can't see the fullness of God's plans. We can't see how all the details will come together in the end. Um, in, in the book of Revelation, it's, it's like the Father sitting on the throne, and as he looks at his plan, it's, it's a completely calm sea of glass. And yet we look from underneath, and it's all turbulence. It's all waves and tumult. And sometimes our lives feel like that where we can't see all that God is at work doing. Yet this passage reminds us God is sovereign, even in our heartache, even in the face of human evil and suffering. The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is a, just a beautiful statement of faith, asks this as its first question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And then this, he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly Father. Recently, uh, came across a book called The Moon is Always Round by Johnny Gibson, who teaches Old Testament at Westminster Seminary. The story is based on, uh, it's a children's book, and it's, it's based on a tradition that he and his wife developed with their son, Ben, from a young age. He loved looking at the moon, and so at nighttime they would do family worship, and then as they were putting Ben to bed as a young child, they would lift him up in the window so he could see the moon. And they'd ask, what, what shape is the moon? So well, it's a crescent, it's a half moon, whatever shape it was. And then they would ask him, Ben, what shape is the moon always? And he'd say, the moon is always round. And they'd say, well, what does that teach us about God? It teaches us that God is always good. Because like the moon, sometimes you can only see portions of it. 
It looks like a crescent. It looks like a half moon or a three-quarter moon. Sometimes you see the whole thing in the full moon, but most of the time you don't. You only see a portion of it. But you know that the moon is always round, even though you can't see the fullness of it. And so it is with God. God is always sovereign. He is always good. Even when we can't understand all that he is doing, we can trust that he is good and he is in control. Nothing is spinning out of control because the Lord sits upon his throne. He is sovereign. And finally, we see not only how the disciples move from fear to faith, not only do we see the Lord sovereignly fulfilling his purposes even in the face of human evil, we also see how the Lord is at work reconstituting his chosen people as a witness to the good news. Notice the end of the passage here. Peter goes through and he explains how Judas' death is part of a fulfillment of Scripture, his betrayal and his death, and that there's another part remaining that Scripture says they must fill his empty role among the apostles. Verse 21, it's necessary part of God's plan. It's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all while Jesus was with us from baptism all the way to his ascension, one of these must fill Judas's spot. And so they have two guys who come up. Don't you love this in scripture where somebody has three names? Uh, Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice. (laughs) And then Matthias, who only has one name, but he's the guy that gets picked. You might think it's the other one who had all the details attached to him. They have these two men who come forward. Both of them have been uh, with Jesus. Of course, his disciples, his group of disciples was larger than the 12 chosen apostles. Uh, And so Matthias and Joseph had been with them the whole time, all the way up to Jesus' ascension. So they put them forward uh, as candidates. They they cast lots, which which was a a typical Old Testament way of of seeking the Lord's will. It wasn't superstition or anything like that as a way of of discerning what God was choosing. They pray, they cast the lots, the lot falls to Matthias. Jesus himself, the text indicates in verse 24, uh, chooses Matthias to fill the vacancy left by Judas, who turned to his own way. Now we might ask, why fill the spot? Or why not pick both of these guys? They both seem qualified. Maybe you have 13. Many hands make for light labor. Uh, We could do a whole lot more with 13 than we could with 12. Why is there this need, why is there this necessity to fill the spot uh, of the 12? Jesus, in choosing his disciples, his apostles, uh, is constituting them as the core, the nucleus of this new Israel. Israel was to be a light to the nations, and under the old covenant, the way that that happened was the nations came to Israel. If you wanted to be part of God's people, you had to be brought into the nation uh, for men through circumcision and then uh, adopting the, all of the dietary laws, the Mosaic regulations that belonged to the nation. If you wanted to belong to people, the people of God, that's how you got in. With the coming of Christ, the direction turns outward. Now, no longer are people coming to a, a specific nation, a specific ethnic group, rather the people of God from all tribes, all tongues, all nationalities are meant to go into all the nations proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the good news that all who come to him in faith 
now belong to Abraham's descendants. Not because of physical lineage, but because of faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So without Judas, you only have 11. And if you don't have 12, you don't have the core of this new Israel sent out as a witness to the light of the gospel. Jesus, through the disciples here, restores the integrity of the group. He restores them from Judas's sin. He restores them as the core of this new Israel so that they are well prepared now to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and to declare the mighty works of God among first the Jews and then to all the nations as the story unfolds. The church is the new Israel, the people of God, those who have found Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the old covenant promises in Jesus, so that all those who put their faith in him, now you are the constituted Israel. You are the people of God meant to be witnesses to the light of his gospel and to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus here reconstitutes his chosen people from among uh, here, the Jews, and then from all nations, so that we might bear witness to his good news. For us, as we conclude, we might ask ourselves several questions. Are we praying, trusting in God's sovereignty, and leaning upon his power for faithful witness? Are we finding comfort in the fact that the moon is always round, that we can't see it, that God is always good, even though we can't understand all of his purposes? And are we trusting him to work out his purposes sovereignly in our lives and seeking to carry out the mission of the church as the new Israel, bearing witness to Jesus, the Messiah, and calling others to faith in him? Uh, may he give us confidence in his plans, and may we carry out the responsibility, the mission that he's given to us as the church of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?